0: Alright guys, before we get into the episode, I do want you to know, um, it's been like a year since I've posted, no, it's, it's less than a year, but this episode was recorded, like I have not been on this podcast, I've not looked at this podcast statistics for a long time. I now have another show that is called Politics Central. And that is everywhere this podcast is, can be heard on. I will no longer be posting here. But on Politics Central. The link will be in the description of the podcast. And you can check it out if you actually want more. Of my political views. Oh my gosh. My political views. And um, there's also going to hopefully be more stuff like this. Um, I do also want to explain that we were eating here we were eating while doing this podcast and there will be little bits of me explaining stuff um when if someone says something that needs explaining i will pop in and i will say i will explain something so you'll understand it when we get into the episode but uh enjoy
1: Um, in Revelation, it talks about like there's a big chunk of Revelation, um, like Revelation th- two and three. Um, it says it's talking about all the churches. Mm-hmm. Now I'm thinking those were like th- those were actual churches mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Do they represent anything to us now? Like, are those like different types of people? Like, mm-hmm. um these all these characteristics apply to certain people and that it's trying to like reach out to the people who are like each of these churches
2: okay yeah that's a good question so yeah you're right you're right in your instinct that those were actual churches that existed in what we would today call turkey like the western part of turkey all those churches are there um so there's there's basically only two views of this section of revelation so i can explain them pretty quickly the first few would say that this part of Revelation was specifically for the first century people. And it was it was kind of like a letter to each of those seven churches so that they could learn from what their strengths and weaknesses were. Like, Jesus, this is Jesus. Like, if you have a red-letter Bible, this is actually Jesus speaking. Mm-hmm. So he's basically saying to each church, first to Ephesus, like, here's what you're good at. Here's what you're bad at. Um and it was a way for those churches to hear from Jesus what they needed to change. Um, now the reason that that's still helpful for us today to read is, come on in. You- oh, we were on. Okay, we're still on the timing thing, like
3: right.
1: No, we were doing. Do churches, oh, churches represent right. anything? Yeah. And you said they are actual churches, and then like you were saying, um, that I'm like kind of right because
2: like the, with the personality types. Yeah, there's still there's still I mean they're actual churches,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but they're still relevant to us because not only are some of our churches like some of those churches, like we have the same weaknesses, the same strengths, mm-hmm. but even on an individual level, you're right. Like we have an individual like for instance, um, the first one, Ephesus. He he named some things that are good about them in the first couple of verses, but then he says in verse 4, Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. So are there some individual Christians who were really on fire for Jesus when they first got became Christians, but then they've kind of forsaken that. Yeah. So, yeah,
1: I, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like I was reading through and I was like, oh, this could be like a type of person. Yeah. Like where they like started out great and then they're like falling and they're like not mm-hmm. doing as mm-hmm. well as they once were. So like like yeah. there are different like each church is like it could be a different like kind of person.
2: Yeah, I mean I think first and foremost they're churches. But they have apple they can apply to your individual life too. So I said there were two views of the chapter two and three. That was the first view that it's kind of like it's about churches and kind of application mm-hmm. to your life. There is another view of those two chapters that's a little different. It those it's called the historical view, but I don't think you really need to worry about the labels. But they believe that each one of the churches in order represents a different era of history, since it, Revelation was written. So Ephesus might represent the first two centuries and Smyrna, the next one might, might represent the the next two centuries. And so they actually believe that each one represents the next couple hundred years all the way till um, Laodicea, which they usually say that's where we are now. Like we're in the seventh church era.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, there's some merit to that. Like it's inter- it's an interesting theory, but I don't I don't I, th- I don't think that's I don't think that's clear when you read it. Like there's no indication that that's that they represent eras
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, of history.
1: So you would think they represent people.
2: I think they represent church seven kinds of churches, mm-hmm. and that they you can apply them to your individual life, but they primarily are applied to churches.
1: Okay. Uh, the next question I have is like a couple times it says it. Talks about a double edged sword, like he's uh, John saw like a uh, being like with like a double edged sword coming out of his mouth, and like later mm-hmm. it's talking about the church, and it said, like I am the one with the double edged sword. Mm-hmm. Does that just like mean he's like powerful? What is that? Yeah, mean? I
2: think, I think the double edged just refers to um, very sharp or penetrating power. So when I type that in. Uh, let's see. Double edge. Let's see what NAV wording is.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, in the Book of Revelation, there's one use of the word double. Okay, so it's not using it for the sword. So, I wonder what the NIV is. What verse are you... Do you see a verse number?
3: Um... Or
2: did you just... Maybe it's just the... I word.
3: can find...
2: I'll just type sword and see.
1: What you do? might have, like, dual edge sword or yeah. something like that. Uh, it says...
2: Oh, a sharp two-edge. Okay, so mm-hmm. it says two-edge. Yeah, the sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth. Two-edged sword. Um, so it's mentioned a couple times.
1: Mm-hmm. Like it says here to the letter to Pergamum, mm-hmm. this is what you must write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. I am the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Listen to what I say.
2: Yeah. So you might remember a pretty famous passage from the book of Hebrews. I think it's from Hebrews. Yeah, so this is um, a passage about, it's Hebrews 4.12. It's a passage about the Word of God. And it says, the Word of God, you've probably heard this verse before, the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. Um, It cuts through all the way through to the soul and spirit. So what it's saying in that verse is, there's something about the Word of God that is very powerful. It can get down into the deepest parts of us. And like the... It says it can divide between soul and spirit. Well, what's the difference between your soul and your spirit? Those are pretty similar, like mm-hmm. usually just synonyms. So it's saying the word of God can actually get really deep down and, and help us to figure stuff out. So when he says in Revelation, the one with the double-edged sword or the two-edged sword, and it's saying it's coming out of his mouth, it's talking about the words of Jesus mm-hmm. are very powerful. So, yeah, I think you got that right. The words of Jesus are very powerful. That's what the sword symbolizes. Uh one more thing I'll say on that. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people think of Revelation as Jesus becoming like a big military hero. Mm-hmm. But it's actually it's, it's it's important to notice that in Revelation the sword is not in his hand. It's coming out of his mouth. Now obviously we're not supposed to picture Jesus with a literal sword mm-hmm. coming out that's that's just silly.
1: That's what I pictured at <laughs> first and I was like this is a bit Very weird, bizarre. and I was like, "It's probably representing yeah. something." He probably didn't literally have a double-edged sword yes. shooting out of his mouth.
2: That's exactly right. So, and what it's saying is, when, whenever you get that kind of silly symbolism, it's obviously making a different point. It's saying that whereas humans like to think that the power is in our muscles and the power is in our military might, what what the revelation is saying is actually it's the word of Jesus that's the most powerful. The thing. in our words. So that's why it's in his mouth. It's symbolic for his word. Um.
1: So, a lot like pretty much all throughout Revelations, it talks about um, elders. Like, who mm-hmm. do elders represent? Mm-hmm. Are those like disciples? Um.
2: See how many times that shows up here. You're in good news. You said good news translation? What did you say? Oh,
1: Contemporary English.
2: I can actually switch to yours so that we're working on the same. Mm hmm. Contemporary English. Okay. So the word elders appears 11 times in Revelation. And usually it says, it refers to, it refers to the fact that there's 24 of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what a lot of people think is that this is a way of talking about the church being made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Because In Israel, there was 12 tribes, right? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So we have Abraham's, well, Jacob's 12 sons were the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in the New Testament, when the church was built, we have the 12 apostles. So the idea is that the, 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 the new covenant is the combination of God's people from the old covenant and the new covenant. 12 plus 12 is 24. Mm-hmm. So the twenty-four elders would kind of be, I think, symbolic of the twelve tribes and the twelve apostles. That's my best guess.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what does this the sealed the sealed scroll? I think obviously plays a very important part in Revelation. So, what is like what what would that represent?
2: I think it's like I said. There's probably various opinions, but
3: mm-hmm.
2: I tend to think it's like the unveiling of history like how's how's history going to unfold like the one that actually makes history happen like you'll notice in the in the passage that they're looking for somebody who can open the seals Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and they're sad like in chapter five
3: Mm -hmm.
2: who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll they're sad because no one can do it like no one can make good no one can make the the future that we want to happen come about
1: and then the lamb opens it up, which the lamb I'm yeah. pretty sure it represents Jesus. Yeah. So the lamb is like what's like what would like plan out our future and pan it out all like the his lamb way. is the one
2: who's able to bring about the the future that's currently sealed, mm-hmm. like that we can't we can't access it yet. So and that that I think is the actually I think that's the most important part of Revelation there in chapter five, because he, if you, if you read this part in five, four it says, I wept, this is John saying, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion. So it, as you're reading that, actually picture like, see, there comes the lion. Mm-hmm. So see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, this triumph. He is able to open the scrolls. And the seventh, then there's this like really surprising thing. He just said, look, there's the lion. And then the very next line is, then I saw a lamb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that the that, that, to me, that's my favorite part of the book. Because the people in Jesus' day, just like the people in our day, they were expecting the Messiah to be a military hero. Yeah,
1: to um like wipe out the Romans. Yeah.
2: So they were expecting like a military lion to come in and just pounce. Right? And yet, what did they get when they looked at the Messiah? A guy dead on a cross. So they they were just like flabbergasted. Like we thought we were wanting we were wanting a lion but this guy that we thought might be the lion is actually just the sacrificial lamb. Mm-hmm. And that you know really made them confused for a while. But the message of revelation is no that's actually the good. That's actually the way it's supposed to be. You're expecting a lion to be coming but it's actually the lamb that actually changes the world. Uh, it's it's the sacrificial love that changes the world not the military might.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, or we might say today uh, the pen is mightier than the sword. Um, so like the word of the words of Jesus are more powerful than the military heroes. Or maybe a good way to say it would be to steal a line from I think Napoleon.
3: I think I have a line from
2: Napoleon. Where is that? <laughs> yeah, take a look at this quote from Napoleon.
1: Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires, but upon what these creations of our genius depend. Upon force, Jesus alone founded this empire upon love, and to this very day millions will die for him. I think that I understand something of human nature, and I tell you, all these were men, and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than a man.
2: So there's Napoleon, who was a military hero, He's admitting that his Jesus' kingdom is different from all other kingdoms. Jesus' kingdom was the only one that was started by sacrifice instead of overpowering others.
1: Mm-hmm. By, like, peace.
2: Okay. So I think that's the main... To me, that's the main moment in Revelation, is we expected... We were wanting a lion, but we get a lamb. But good news, the lamb actually does what we wanted the lions to
1: do. Mm-hmm. So, like, you're we're expecting some, like, this really... Like, like this military leader to come and just essentially, like, through violence, kind of, like, pave out our future. But really, we got someone with peace who paved out our
2: future. Yeah. Yeah. And the mystery is, like, how can... It's kind of what we're dealing with today, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We feel like there's an injustice in our country that black people are treated worse than white people by the police department, by police officers, in a lot of cases, we feel like there's an injustice there. And what how do we fix this? Do we fix it by rioting? Uh, do we fix it by throwing bricks into windows? Do we fix it by um, attacking police officers? Do we, you know that's, that's the way the world thinks. The way to fix things is violence. And the message of Jesus is, no, actually, the thing that will ultimately change the world is to change the hearts of people so that they're filled with love. Like, you wouldn't have any bad cops if all cops had the love of Jesus in them. And you wouldn't have any bad protesters if all protesters had the love of Jesus in them. You wouldn't have any violence. So, the lamb, the lamb way is actually better than the lion way, even though our human instincts just want to overpower
3: mm-hmm.
2: it.
1: Uh, The next question uh, I have is, there are seven seals on the scroll, and like, something happens, like, every time it's opened, um, so, like, the, the four horsemen, like, yeah. don't they come out when, yeah, like, the, the first four that are open, these four horsemen come out, uh, yeah. what do the horsemen represent?
2: Well, they certainly seem bad.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, the, the stuff that comes out with them is, you know, pretty terrible, uh, like mm-hmm. plagues and death. I think that I think that each of the horsemen. What chapter is this?
1: See. Uh, this is for me. It's chapter six, opening the seven seals.
3: Okay.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think each of the horse the horses is pretty cle- pretty clearly laid out. So we have when the lamb opened the first seal, there was a white horse. So we have a white horse, and then you have the, the fiery red one, and then you have the, the third. pale
1: green one and the black one. Yeah,
2: yeah, I, I think that they represent um, like plagues and war mm-hmm. and things that are going to happen um, before. Like I haven't yet brought into I haven't yet brought into the conversation different views of Revelation itself. So, I don't know. Maybe that's, this is a good time to do that. So, you know how before I said there are some people who read Matthew 24 like it's about the end of the world, mm-hmm. and other people like it was about 8070? Mm-hmm. The same is actually true for Revelation. There are some people who think that Revelation is just an expanded version of Matthew 24. In fact, everyone really agrees with that. Everyone agrees that Revelation is an expanded view of Matthew twenty-four, which we call the Olivet Discourse. Jesus was in the Mount of Olives when they asked him that question, "When will this happen?" So it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's interestingly, it's found. The Olivet Discourse is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but not John. John does not have it, but John is usually linked with the as being the author of Revelation.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So a lot of, that's why a lot of people think. John didn't put it in the gospel according to John because he, he put it in revelation in an expanded form. So because it's probably an expansion of the Olivet Discourse, um, I think the same, the same views apply. Like there are some people who think that revelation has already been, has already happened. Most of it, like that, that, that what, what you're reading about the horses happened in like the, 66 and 67, 68, and 69 AD, like the first century. And so, that there was just like Jesus said, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, and they'll be like the same. That did happen in the years before the AD 70 destruction of the temple. So, they would say Revelation 4 through 19 has already happened. I'm guessing you've never heard that view. <laughs> but that is a, that is a view that that Revelation four through nineteen has already happened. Um, at least most
3: of nineteen, maybe not all of it.
2: But then then they would say the end of Revelation skips ahead to the second coming, mm-hmm. um, and it says like not only is God going to rescue his people in eighty seventy, but he's also going to change the whole universe in the end of time. So they would say most of Revelations already happened. Mm-hmm um if you're if you're not of that persuasion then you probably do believe that revelation most people believe revelation 4 through 19 is is about the end of the world. In which case those would be things that would happen before the second coming like there'll be there'll be famine or plagues and wars. Although there's always famines and plagues mm-hmm. and wars. So yeah. it really doesn't tell us much because there's always those things happening and it might just be like an increased amount. Um, but we have no way of knowing. But yeah, that's what the horses represent is kind of negative things that are gonna happen in succession um, as as history unfolds. Whether it's first century history or all of history or the end of the world history, that's a little more unclear.
1: So, uh, what? So, do the seals on the scroll like there's seven of them? Do they represent something, or could they like represent Like, maybe the churches mentioned earlier or something. Like, what do the seals represent? Anything?
2: There's a lot of different groups of seven Mm -hmm. because seven is the number of completion or perfection in the Bible. I don't, I don't tend to read too much into what the seven represent. I think it's just like a way of saying, as an author, when you're writing symbolic literature. It's a way of saying this is like the full number, so like the, he's talking about all of history. Mm-hmm. So seven, I think, is more like this is the way of saying like this this covers all of history or this covers all the history that we're talking about. It's it's a complete telling of what's what's to come. So I wouldn't like read individually like this this one this seal represents this and this seal represents. I wouldn't do that. I think the numbers are more symbolic of just
3: completion or the whole the whole group.
1: Okay, um. So when it says to be uh. Like marked on the forehead, does that just mean like they were like like people know that this is like a follower of God?
2: The whole mark of the beast thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. there's like God marking yeah. those on the forehead, and then the beast marks those on the forehead.
2: Yeah. Now a lot of people take that literally, mm-hmm. um, and they think that you know we're gonna literally have these marks. Um, or not have these marks, or have the God mark, or um, I don't take it literally. I think that it's just it's just kind of a way of saying like, well, it's like the way I the way I phrase it at church, right? I would talk about the seven marks of a disciple.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it's like these are these are these are indications that you're a genuine disciple. Um, so I think that's the same idea there that. If you're if you're truly a follower of Christ, you're marked.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You're marked primarily by the Spirit of God
3: mm-hmm. in your life,
2: and I, so I've I just never I've just never really been impressed by the idea of taking them literally. Like, like there's people right now concerned about like, oh, what if the what if the va- the vaccine for COVID nineteen is, is is a mark of the beast, or what if the what if they put a computer chip in us to monitor where we are for? Things like that, like there, then people are afraid that that would be the mark of the beast. Mm -hmm. I just think it's the whole book of Revelation is symbolic, it it says that about itself. It says these are signs and symbols. Mm -hmm. So, I don't think I think whenever we take it too literally, um, we're not reading it the way it says to
3: be read.
1: So, when you're like marked on the forehead, it just means like people know that you are a follower of God, or people know that you are not, and like you, like. Kind of belong to the beast.
2: Primarily, you would know, and the more like if I do think at the end of the world, this is just kind of a guess, but I do think at the end of the world there'll be more of a clarity. Like I think there'll be like a separating of the sheep and the goats, so to speak. Like there'll be more, it'll be more obvious. Like right now, you go to Walmart, you can't tell who's a Christian, who's not. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be some guesses, like some indications, like oh that person has a Christian T-shirt, they might be a Christian. Or, hey, that person's swearing up a storm. They might not be. You know? mm-hmm. um, so there might be some indication, but you generally don't know when you're walking around. I think in the end of the world, it might be the case that um, Christians, remember, because we talked about quality is going to be increasing, the quality of the yeah. church. So there might be, it might be the case that Christians at the end of the world are more and more, um, more and more have to come out of um, the culture because the culture is getting more and more ridiculous or crazy. So if we're coming more and more out of the culture you it'll be easier to identify who's a Christian who's not because oh this person this person won't even go to for, for instance, like back in the remember you've probably seen stories of like the gladiator games and stuff and uh, when they used they used to take criminals and put them in front of the crowd and just have lions chase them like in Rome mm-hmm. the Roman Empire. Yeah it was pretty it was pretty easy to identify the Christians in that culture because they were the ones in the lion ring, and the non Christians were the ones watching and cheering <laughs> so so I think that as as we get closer to the end of the world, I think there probably will be a greater separation, just Christians might not shop at certain places because they're in line with evil or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it might be more easy to identify And that. So they're like marked because of their different actions. They live differently. So they're on mark. Like people, they're easy to mark. Like, like um, assassins have used that word. Like, uh, I see my mark. Mm -hmm. They know who they're shooting at. (laughs) So like, because they're easy to identify because they know what they look like. So people will know what Christians are like because they're different.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And that's, that has to do with the quality. Christians will become more different than their peers.
1: Um, there is a lot of stuff in stuff that happens, um, with the opening of the seventh seal. Um, like, could you explain, like, some of this? Like, um, the 144,000, like, what do those, Mm -hmm. like, what, what, where do those come into play? Mm Um, uh, there are like in chapter 8 it talks about all this stuff after the seventh seal is open mm-hmm. like the the trumpets um which i also have a question about yeah. <laughs> um there's just like a ton of stuff after the seven seals so
3: mm-hmm.
1: whatever you can ex- like explain ah. <laughs> like and with the um I admit. March for Ad.
2: I mean, I should admit before I answer this question to the best of my ability that I don't really know either. <laughs> like, it's really hard to figure out. Yeah. But, um, I think that obviously the seven seal is kind of like the climax of the opening of the seal. Mm-hmm. It's like it's a full, the full opening. So you're you're kind of as a reader of the book, you're kind of have a heightened sense of emotion as you're reading mm-hmm. it because you've been building up to this. So who are the 144,000? Well, that's that's a fun question. Historically, in eighteen, in eighteen, in the eighteen hundreds, there was a group of people that we know today as Jehovah's Witnesses, mm-hmm. and they read that passage and said, "This is the there's going to be 144,000 people that get saved at the end of time," and they started counting. They started saying, "I'm one. I'm a mm-hmm. Jehovah's Witness. That's one." next guy that's two <laughs> and they started going. and the problem was by the time they got to like 19 like 18 they they were ran out they were all up to 144,000 sure. so they were like Jesus is going to return now because we're all here
3: with mm-hmm.
2: 144,000 of us and then Jesus didn't return so they were like oh so then they came up with this theory that Jesus invisibly returned uh, <laughs> so they but like it, it kind of exposed the falseness of their of their view
1: yeah, because if, like, he had invisibly returned, <laughs> then they would have knew it because they said they were part they were of the 144,000. Yeah. So
2: they kind of got, they kind of trapped themselves by mm-hmm. interpreting it wrong and then waiting, waiting to see what happened. I think that uh, Personally, if you just want my personal view, I think that the number is clearly symbolic because it's a perfectly round number. Mm-hmm. It's, there were 12 tribes of Israel and you multiply 12 by whatever to get, you multiply 12 by a thousand mm-hmm. to get 12,000 from each tribe. And each tribe being 12,000 plus times 12 equals 144,000. So it's clear. It's clearly symbolic. It's not like, it's not like there were literally 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 mm-hmm. from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe. It's symbolic of the fact that the, the remnant, like sometimes in the old Testament, you'll see the word remnant. hmm I think it's symbolic of the fact that the remnant of Israel, like true the true Israelites, those who really came to Jesus, those who recognized Jesus as their Messiah that were Jewish, the fullness of that remnant was going to be saved. So like in the early church uh, who how many of the Christians in the early church were Jewish? most all of them right Paul was Jewish, Peter was Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, the only there's only a couple exceptions that we know of, so most all of them were Jewish. I think that, that the 144,000 is just it, it could be one of two things. Either Revelation is about 8070, like this part,
3: mm.
2: and this is about how there's 100 approximately 144,000 Jews are going to be saved before 8070, so that could be. I, I still wouldn't interpret it literally. I wouldn't say it had to be exactly. The mm-hmm. I would just say a lot of Jews are going to get saved before 8070. And technically that number would be pretty close to what did happen. Because there were somewhere around that number of Jews saved before 8070. Mm-hmm. The other possibility is that this past this book is this part of the book is about the end of the world, in which case it may be that at the end of at the end of time, a lot of Jews will start getting saved, like become mm-hmm. Christians. And if, if you think that theory is good, then you might connect that with Romans 11, where it says, um, once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. Mm-hmm. That's Romans eleven twenty six. 26. So you could connect it to that and say that at the end of the world, there'll be a lot of Jewish people getting saved. And represented by this one hundred forty four thousand number.
1: So, what do you interpret it as, like your personal opinion?
2: I think that I think that it does. Re- I think it's clearly. I think it clearly represents Jewish people because mm-hmm. it literally mentions tribe by tribe. Mm-hmm. So, I do think it's talking about Jewish people being saved. Um, I'm open to the idea of a lot of Jews being saved at the end of the world. I think that would be great. I don't think the Romans passage actually means that,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but I, I guess I would just say I don't know.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like I really don't know if it's talking about pre people getting saved before eighty seventy, or if it's talking about a lot of con- Jewish converts at the end of time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I hope both are true. I mean, mm-hmm. I hope the more people saved, the better. Yeah, but I really don't know. I wouldn't even venture to say a confident
3: opinion.
1: So any. Uh, So, now, like, any explanation on the seventh seal? Like, because the seventh seal is, like, like you said, it's a climax, and it's Mm -hmm. just, like, probably the most confusing and maybe most controversial of all the seals. Mm -hmm. So, So
2: the first thing that happened was, chapter 8, was the silence.
3: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So, just occurred to me that you guys might not even know who I'm talking to in this episode. I'm talking to my pastor, and we are a Wesleyan church. So, if you're wondering, like, whatever, I don't know what it's called, but, like, what version, I guess, what kind of Christian that I am, we're we're Wesleyans, and, yeah, so, I'm talking with my pastor, he's a pastor of a Wesleyan church.
1: Yeah, the, the silence for half an hour, like, I don't think that really, like, I don't, what would that represent, though?
2: The half an hour?
1: Yeah, just half an hour of silence.
2: It just—I don't know why it would be just half an hour, but like it just seems like it's like a moment of awe.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but that's all I could say. I don't know. And then that just starts the seven trumpets. Uh huh. There. I mean, it's such a—it's such a—it's such a hard conversation to have because like I said, there's so many views. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I've heard people like I have commentaries over there of people who say that revelation is kind of like, here's one way to describe it. Just using kind of my, my fingers for drawing an image. Some people mm-hmm. think revelation is like a, an escalating chronology. So you have like the seven seals, the seven trumpets, it's all escalating towards a, towards the end. But other people actually think it's more like, um, like almost like, a. I don't know if you want to say like a toilet flushing, like it's kind of going around and it's it's Mm -hmm. describing the same thing a little bit differently over and over. So So like goes
1: goes up and then down and up and down. Not,
2: not so much like up and down, but like if I were, if I were going to describe my day, Oh, that's not a good example. If I were going to describe, um, like, let's say a a football game, Mm -hmm. I might first say if I was writing an article, I might say, you know, today the Buffalo bills, um, defeated the Carolina Panthers well, thanks.
0: Uh, now, this uh, doesn't require too much explaining, but essentially, I'm a Carolina Panthers fan, and my pastor's my pastor is a Bills fan.
2: <laughs> so I might say the Buffalo Bills defeated the Carolina Panthers, and Christian McCaffrey had a season-ending Achilles
3: tendon injury. All
2: right, <laughs> so I might hopefully not. <laughs> so I might I might describe the game that way in brief,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then I might in the second paragraph say, in the first quarter. Buffalo took an early seven, nothing lead when Christian McCaffrey fumbled and the bills picked it up and returned it for a touchdown. Right. <laughs> In the second quarter, blah, blah, blah. And then after I go through kind of each quarter, I might go back a third time and say, um, the, the, the fans during the game got really loud during that third quarter outburst, you know, when, when Cam Newton threw an interception, like all that stuff. So, you see what I'm saying? Like they, You might describe the game three different times. It's the same game. You're not going chronologically. You're just kind of circling back. So some people think that Revelation is a description of a time period, and then it goes back and describes the same time period again with different language and different detail, and then it goes back and describes the same time period again with different language and detail. So that's why I say this conversation is really tricky because some people think it's just chronological one direction, and some people think it's circling back upon itself. And because there's those different opinions, every question that you ask is going to be really hard to answer because there's so many different mm-hmm. opinions. So if you if you want kind of my own take on the big picture, like if we're backing up and saying, What's your big picture view of revelation? Mm-hmm. I would say that the book of Revelation was written I think about most of it was written I think about the 1st century and it's describing events that were you know, you, and you know you just read Revelation you know a bunch of times it says these are events that will soon take place.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So I think so I think its reason for being written was to describe events in the 1st century. Except for the very end, I think he he views something that's coming into the world. Mm. Right? Like most of the book, I think was primarily for the first century, but that doesn't mean that history doesn't often repeat itself. Mm-hmm. So that's why, in pretty much any century of history, somebody could pick up this book and say, "Well, that sounds like what the days we're living in now." Like if you were picking this up during World War II, you're going to be like, "Wow, this this really seems mm-hmm. like a lot of stuff like there's wars and there's." There's all sorts of fighting and all that you know, you're gonna see stuff that applies too. So I think the point of the book of Revelation was to kind of establish a guide for dealing with really hard times in history.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like what how do I find hope in the midst of World War Two? Well, my hope is in the fact that ultimately the lamb will always defeat the lion in the end. Um so if I'm reading Revelation during World War II I'm taking comfort in the fact that the beasts are defeated mm-hmm. by the lamb. I might I might not see that in my day but I know that's how the story will eventually unfold.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um like I kind of related it to what's happening now like everyone's turning against each other like especially in America like everything's like like everyone's, especially with like with the death of George Floyd, like yeah. everyone's turning against each other and there are like two sides of the argument and, um, like, like with the pandemic happening as well, mm-hmm. like all this crazy stuff is happening around the world that can be related to us. But like you said, with World War II, it could also have been like related to then as yeah. well.
2: Yeah. And I think that's the cool thing about scripture. It can always be relevant. But remember gotta remember when when John wrote Revelation, he was he was a minority. He was a Jewish Christian living under the vast powerful Roman Empire. And he was being persecuted by that empire. He was an exile. He was an exile as as a he was in custody
3: mm-hmm.
2: of this empire. So I think like if you're John Let's just get real down to earth here. Like, Let's say you're John. You knew Jesus personally on earth. You want to write a letter to encourage. You're writing a letter from exile to encourage the churches in Western Turkey. Right? Mm. You want that letter to get to them. But you know that all the all the mail at any time can be confiscated by the romans. Mm-hmm. So as you write the letter, are you going to say then there was then the roman empire is going to do this and then jesus is going to defeat the roman empire? If you if you know your letter might be hijacked and read by roman soldiers. Do you really think you're going to write then the romans did this, then the romans did that or are you going to put it in symbolic terms and say then there was this great beast?
3: Mm.
2: So he's I, I think it's pretty clear that he's not He's not talking about literal beasts and dragons, and mm-hmm. and yeah. he, he's saying that he's using code language for the Romans, and and so that's that's kind of a good perspective to have about the whole thing.
1: When, so, when I was reading about the beast, I thought it represented like like Satan. Like I think it's I it said one at one point like
2: the great dragon Satan.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: That's,
2: that's in there, yeah. The beast is different from the dragon though,
3: because mm-hmm.
2: we have the beasts out of the sea in chapter. 13. We have the dragon mentioned in chapter 12, but then there's the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth in chapter 13. I think those are di- different different entities being described. Mm, I, I see. So I think the dragon most most clearly represents Satan. Mm-hmm. The beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. The way the way I picture the way I understand them is that the beast, those two beasts represent kind of n- the empire, like the Roman Empire,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the Roman religion. Uh, you might say, why do you think that? Well, empire and religion often work together. So even in even in America, you know, I don't know that America counts as an empire,
3: mm-hmm. at
2: least not anymore. But probably the last empire the world had was like the British Empire where they had colonies all over the place and they were in control of a large part of the world. Uh, so I think what John is saying when he describes the beast, he's talking about, I think, the Roman Empire. And what they what they did in the Roman Empire is they actually enforced worship of Caesar. Like You had to worship Caesar. Like their coin said, the divine Caesar, son of God. Um, so they, they enforced like a religion built around their empire. And so I think when he talks about the beast out the sea, the beast out of there I, I tend to think he's thinking of there's this there's these empires which are cruel I mean what were the empires doing they were crucifying anyone that wouldn't align with the Empire that's why Jesus got crucified because mm-hmm. he was he was considered a threat to the Empire uh, somebody who was claiming to be a king when only the Romans are allowed to claim to be kings so the empires were terrible they were crucifying mm-hmm. people they were um, enslaving people. Um, empires were, you know, robbing, robbing people through taxation. So, John describes it as a beast. The Roman Empire is a beast. And the worship of Caesar is a beastly thing, too. That's a terror, That the the religious institution of the day was, was corrupt. And those two things worked together.
3: Uh,
2: so, do the trumpets,
1: um, like they would like sound their trumpets and then something would happen. Mm-hmm. Like, do they represent anything except for just like the signaling of something starting?
2: I think it's just that. Mm. It's just uh, to let the reader know that the next mm. thing is coming.
1: Um, do we know anything about uh, the, the little scroll that um, John had to eat? That tasted as sweet as honey but turned his stomach sour.
2: Yeah, where's that one?
1: Um that is somewhere towards the end, I think. I'm not I'm not positive. Um Let's
3: see what I am find here.
2: Uh oh, 10. chapter ten.
1: Mm, so it was not towards the end.
2: So that's the angel in yeah. the little scroll, chapter ten. Yeah. Verse 9 says, I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it.
1: Like it says, um, like that he couldn't write it down.
3: Yeah.
2: It's been a while since I looked at that passage. Let me, um, let me look at what uh, the the four different views are of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Like,
1: like do do we know at all like what is inside of it or can we like infer something was inside of it for some something else in the Bible just like stuff like that or like what does the him eating it and be it being sweet but turning his stomach sour what does that represent?
2: Yeah. One, one thing I'll say before before I look at this um, different thoughts on it
3: mm-hmm.
2: most. I one I one thread, I can't remember if this is exactly right, but I one thread that there's about I think four hundred and forty-four verses in Revelation. And that 278 of them are like references to the Old Testament.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, of course, in the Old Testament we do have occasion where like Ezekiel is told to eat a scroll.
3: Mm-hmm. So I think
2: usually the best way to interpret Revelation is to find something similar in the Old Testament and find out more about that. Mm. Because that's all John. John is a Jewish guy who knew the Bible well.
3: Mm-hmm. The Bible
2: of his day was the Old Testament. So as he's writing, he's he, where is he getting all this imagery? Where is he getting all this symbolism? He's getting it from the Old Testament. So if I if I were to come across Revelation 10 and I see this little scroll and he's eating it, I would automatically go back and study that passage mm. in, in Ezekiel and find out more about that. And then that would probably help me interpret Revelation.
1: So, was the fact that he had to eat it just because, like, he needed to dispose of it? And if that's the case, why was it sweet but, like, upset his stomach?
2: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but let me see what people think about that. So, we're in chapter 10.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Let me see if there's different ideas here.
3: Yeah.
1: Revelation Relation 10. 10, I'm trying to find it online as well, S- studying this part, go
3: and take this program.
2: So this 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 is this thing here that I'm looking at, these mm-hmm. are like my notes from Steve Griggs' book.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So he describes the four different views. The first view he describes is the futurist. That's the person who thinks all of Revelation is about the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And he says, it seems every futurist writer has a different view of this little book. John is told to eat it because he was to live by its words. Mm -hmm. So like when we eat something, we live from that thing. It gives us life. Mm -hmm. So we're to eat it because we live by its words. It tasted sweet in hope, but bitter in judgment. Mm -hmm. That's how they interpret it. Um, The next view is the historicist view. That's the idea that revelation spans different eras. And it's this, their interpretation of that is the little book is the Bible now open to the common people through the events surrounding the reformation. They're saying the era we're talking about in this part, because remember that view was like the churches in revelation represent seven eras.
3: Mm.
2: They, the people who take that view often then say, then chapters four through 19 go through those eras in more depth. Mm. So kind of like the cycle thing. Mm. So they say the little books, the Bible, and it's now open because of the Protestant reformation, like Martin Luther around this time, the printing press was invented and the new translations of the Bible emerge. John eats it to symbolize the reformation church feeding, feeding on God's word. That's a different interpretation. Like that's interesting. The preterist view is the view that it mostly had to do with the first century. And they say the little book is essentially the book of Revelation. Um, eating the book was an imitation of Ezekiel 3. His prophecy was about the destruction of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel's prophecy was about Jerusalem being destroyed in 586 BC. Now John ate the book prior to the destruction in eighty seventy. So they're saying that he's kind of having to swallow, what's, swallow the truth that mm-hmm. here's what's coming. It's a message, like it tastes sweet because The destruction of Jerusalem is vindication for the Christians, but it's bitter because he's a Jew and his city is being destroyed. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's the Predator's view. And then there's a fourth view called the Spiritualist view, which basically thinks that Revelation is not about any particular time, but just more general Mm -hmm. good versus evil. And it says, the book contains God's message for the whole world. God's word is sweet, but proclaiming it leads to persecution. So, like, it's sweet to hear God's word, but once you get God's word inside you, you're going to be persecuted. So, that's why Mm -hmm. it's a bitter aftertaste. So, that's just just an example of how different the views are. So, you had one view talking about Martin Luther in the 1500s, you know, you have one view talking about, you know, 8070. There's just a lot of different views, but. That gives you an, an illustration of how different they are. I don't know um, if you thought one of those made more sense than the other, but
1: Well, I think it kind of made sense, like like that it can be like parts of it are good, but parts of it like we have to endure hardships.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but like it's like it's still gonna be good. Um, mm-hmm. but my next question is we talked about the woman earlier. So what does the woman represent? And she's Giving birth to her son, so what does your son represent? Yeah. And uh, we know the dragon who wants to eat the son.
3: Yeah.
2: This uh, one I think represents is
1: Represents Satan?
2: I think this one's clearer to me. I tend to think that the woman represents most broadly Israel, mm-hmm. and most more specifically, maybe even Mary and that the sun mm-hmm. represents Jesus. And that the dragon is Satan, and when Jesus was born, what did what did Satan try to do? He tried to have the baby killed mm-hmm. by working through Herod.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: In the when they tried to kill all the baby boys. So I actually think that's I actually think John 12 is just a commentary on the Christmas story. I think he's saying that um, there was an attempt by Satan to kill the Messiah but it fell short and that's that was a major event and now Jesus now there's many descendants the church isn't the many descendants and Satan's still trying to attack them so like verse 13 when the dragon or Satan saw that he had been hurled out of the earth he pursued the woman who gave birth to the male child the woman was given two wings I think it's kind of saying, like, Jesus was rescued and the early church is being rescued. Mm. So that's how I would take that.
3: Um, Let's see. Verse, verse
2: 17 says, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her mm-hmm. offspring. So, like, Satan's against the church.
1: So I put down, I wrote down, uh, why does the woman have to get, like, be taken care of for... 1260 days, but that so that doesn't really have any significance. Well,
3: no.
2: it could be like I said, if I mean, there's a couple ways you could do that. You mm-hmm. could say maybe that's when Jesus went to Egypt. Remember, Jesus was taken to Egypt when mm-hmm. the wise men warned him, or God warned Joseph, or you could say that it's talking about the church being protected during the Jewish war. In AD 66 through 69, three and a half years until the until the destruction of the temple. Because so that, that's actually a pretty interesting story to tell. I'll tell you that story real quick. In around the year 60, well, remember when Jesus warned them in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. That's Matthew 24. It was a warning from Jesus to his disciples that when you see the armies the roman armies coming around the city then you should flee. Well that begs the question how do you flee if the armies <laughs> are surrounding yeah. you? Well historically that's very interesting how that played out. The romans went to attack Jerusalem around 66 AD and when they were approaching they surrounded Jerusalem for a little while but then there was problems back in Rome so they left. Mm. And when they left The early Christians took that as a sign that this is what Jesus had warned them about. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies flee to the mountains. So the early Christians fled the city. Mm -hmm. The Jews who were not Christians stayed. When the Romans came back, I don't know if it was months later, when the Romans came back, the only people left in the city were the Jews. And they said, God will never let this city be destroyed. But the Christians knew. That Jesus had literally said it would be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So the people that were killed by the Jewish by the war against Jerusalem were all Jews that were not Christians. So it could be that that's referring to the three and a half years in which the Christians were spared during the war,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and the Jews were not spared because they were still in the city. Well, because remember these are walled cities, so like while a war is going on, there's basically just Wars back then, like the the powerful army would just surround the city
3: mm-hmm.
2: and then they would just basically wait it out. Because if you couldn't get out of the city you couldn't get food, you'd run out of water. So the the so the army would just surround the city and just wait till the people started to be famished.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Which kind of brings to mind the horsemen. You know, like mm-hmm. there's famine and there's plague and it's all because you don't have access to food as you're at war.
1: Okay. Um the next question I have is like uh, when it has like God's bowls of anger, like, does that just mean he's like with the bowls, like pouring out his anger onto like the people of earth?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I think that God is patient. But it talks in scripture a lot about the wrath of God kind of filling up until it overflows. So God is very patient. Just like he tells us to be slow to anger. He tells, you know, he tells us that because that's how he is. He is slow to anger. But if you're slow to anger, does that mean you never get angry?
1: No, it just means like it, you would. Mean, it just means you
2: don't
3: have emotional outbursts.
1: Yeah. Like um uh like um Nathan was talking about this like he Wait, was it Nathan? Um, uh, trying to think. Like, his go to is like, like grace and mercy, and, but like, he gets like, no, I was at, um, another pastor, Matt, um, at Grace Bible Church. Oh, okay. Um, I did a youth group there right before the youth Zoom meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, and he said, like, He's talking about how God has to be like, like God is provoked to anger, but he is slow to anger. And he, like, his first, like, instinct is to be merciful. And, um, but, like, once he gets provoked to anger, then, then he gets, like, he gets, that's where the anger will come from. He's, but that's like, that's what he resorts to, like, after, like, being, like, peaceful.
2: Yeah. I would say. I would say it's all love. Okay, if I I love Kenzie and Tears and Everly and Bruxy.
3: Mm. Um
2: when they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, that love is easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, when when they're throwing a temper tantrum, that love might turn more towards more to discipline. I discipline mm-hmm. them because I love them.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: If they, if Kenzie gets to be eighteen years old. And says, this will sound familiar, but like, let's say Kenzie's 18 years old. And she says, dad, I want my inheritance. Now I wish you were dead. (laughs) Right. Like the good, like the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. Um, What would be the most loving thing to do? Well, what did the prodigal father, what did the the father do? He said, okay. Mm -hmm. He said, I can see, you know, he didn't say this, but we can read into it. Like he could see that his son's heart was far from him.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And he said that probably the best thing I can do as a parent now is let them Go out into the world and see what it's like to live without me.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So, when the prodigal son, where did he end up?
1: Um. Well, he wasted all of his money. Mm-hmm. Um. He uh, ended up like working with like pigs and yeah. eating their food and being well, like being jealous that like the pigs are better off than him. So then he went back to father mm-hmm. and was like, yeah. I'm sorry, I'll like work for you. And the father's like, "Yeah, I'm just glad you're back.
2: Yeah. So, so like when he's out, when he's out, you know, mucking it up with the pigs, like just living with the pigs, trying to eat their food, um, that depending on your perspective, some people might look at that and say, oh, the, the father's wrath is on him. The father's that guy, that guy's had it. That that guy, his his father must must not love him because he's let him. He's letting him experience this. But that mm-hmm. would be a bad reading of the story, right? Because we know that the father actually loves the son mm-hmm. and tried wanted him to stay. I think that when we talk about the wrath of God, a lot of times we think of God as just like I'm going to do evil against them now. I'm mm-hmm. going to punish them. When really it's, I think the wrath of God is when we've gotten so far away from God that we're no longer in his protection. Mm -hmm. We start to experience the evils of this world in a greater way. And it feels like God's angry with us. But actually it's just evil coming on its own head. Like it's just what, that's just what evil does to itself. So like when I talk, when I read like the cup of wrath, it's, it's easy to. I can understand why a lot of people do this. Like, it's easy to think of God pouring out his anger on people. But I think it's just a way of describing what we experience when we've pushed God away. Does that make sense?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, if i, if I pushed God away forever and then I'm experiencing the misery of godlessness, that feels like God's wrath. But it's actually just... It's just that we're no longer in... We're no longer accessing God's love.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So- okay, real quick, uh, I just need to say, if he ever mentions, like, Kinsey and Tears, that those are his children. So I don't know if he already has, or if he's going to, because I really just don't feel like listening to this entire thing, uh, because I'm lazy. Um, if he ever mentions Kinsey and Tears, that those are his kids.
1: Um, It says somewhere uh, there were... There were like I think seven kings and like two of them were like five of them were dead two of them were not oh, and yeah. the two hadn't ruled yet and the last one would rule but not for, for a very long time. Like, you interpret that like what what did that all mean?
0: Yeah, we're in. Were those like early seventeen kings? here?
1: Um. Yes, five of the kings are dead, one is ruling now, and the other one has, one is ruling now, and the other one has not yet come. But when he does, he will rule for a little, for only a little while.
2: Yeah, what verse is that?
1: That is nine for, or ten for me.
2: Okay. Most people interpret this as, like, referring to actual leaders, Mm -hmm. actual military leaders. It might be interesting to go to this and see, just once again give you a snapshot of the different of the different interpretations, um, so we're in Romans or Revelation 17. Okay, so so just just to give you another taste of how different these views are, yeah. um, the futurist view—that's the idea that it's all about the end of the world. Mm-hmm. These are ten future kings who will give their power to the Antichrist. Uh, men, or, or a step above that. Many futurists believe the seven kings represent the seven empires of history. Five past, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, medo persia Greece. One present, Rome. And one future, the revived Roman Empire. So they actually think the Roman Empire is going to come back. So, um, mm. verse you said that was verse 10? Yeah, there are also mm. seven kings. Five have fallen. So those are five empires. Mm. One... Is that's That would be Rome. And the other has not yet to come as a revived Roman Empire. So that's how the futurists would take it.
1: So these aren't like necessarily kings, but they're like kingdoms. kingdoms. Yeah, yeah, that's
2: how they would take it. The historicists, so this is the view that it's going to air as a history. These are the seven forms of government of the Roman Empire. Five fallen, kings, councils, dictators, decembers, I don't even know that, the military tribunes. And then one is in power, Caesars. And one yet future, and there's various opinions about that. Now that just seems way off to me, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that just seems like that's not what the text is symbolizing. But that's the historicist view. The preterist view, and pre- that's probably that's probably a new word, preterist. Mm-hmm. But preterist just means past. So this is a, the, this is the view that Revelation's been fulfilled in the past, first century. So the preterist view is that the seven kings were ancient Roman emperors. Five have fallen Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. One was currently in power when Revelation was written, Vespasian, and one was yet future, Titus. And it's talking about the events of AD 70. Mm-hmm. So that's the preterist view.
1: Can you uh, re go the second one?
2: The, the historical? Um,
1: yeah, I missed that.
2: Yeah, the historic view, uh, that's the one I think makes the least sense. Mm. They say it represents seven forms of government. Mm, Okay. Do you want me to list the forms? No, that's good. So seven forms of government. So the first one was seven empires. Mm. The second one was seven forms of government. The third one was seven specific kings Mm
3: -hmm.
2: or Caesars. And then the spiritual view is the seven kings are peaks in anti-god empires. Five have fallen, Babel. Assyria, Babylon, meet to Greece. One is in power, Rome, and one is yet future. All empires from the fall of Rome till the future Antichrist. So that's kind of similar to the first few in some ways.
3: Okay.
2: So that's just another example of how far-ranging the interpretations are.
3: Um,
1: uh, so, it talks about the fall of Babylon. Is that just for, like, that time, or is it, like, for, like, more future kingdoms and future kingdoms, like, to, to come. Like, well, obviously there's going to yeah. be different beliefs on that as well. Yeah. Um, but, like, is that just meaning, like, then that was happening, and it was just, like, giving foresight for then? Or is it, like, going to happen, like, more yeah. and more in the future?
2: This this is one, that's one question that I, I feel like I am more concrete on in my answer. Mm-hmm. Like A lot of these, I'm like, I don't know, but um, this one I feel more concrete on. I think that Babylon, in the book of Revelation, is purposefully symbolic of all evil empires.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, what it's what, what the author of Revelation is saying, or what Jesus is saying through this, is no matter how many empires come, they all as, as long as they're not the kingdom of God, they will all fall.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Babylon has fallen and fallen. So... It's interesting. Like the the um, like the futurists take it literally. They think that Babylon itself is actually going to rise from the ashes. Like right now, um, Babylon is like in modern day Iraq. Mm-hmm. So they would say it's going to rise back up,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: Babylon is going to become a great empire in the future, and that's and that's going to fall at the second coming of Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. Other people say Babylon represents false religion. Um, Some people, the preterists think it represented actually first century Jerusalem. Some preterists, they say it represented Jerusalem. Jerusalem had become a Babylon because it had rejected Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so that city of Jerusalem fell because they were like Babylon. And most people, I think the majority view is that Babylon represented ancient Rome. Mm -hmm. Right now, Rome, the Roman Empire is in charge, but they're going to fall. And they eventually did. You know, they Mm -hmm. fell a couple hundred years later. Mm -hmm. So...
1: Yeah. Um. It says like the, I don't know if it says um the beast or the dragon, but I think it says like s- like Satan is going to be like released, yeah. but like just to be defeat. killed. Yeah. Like, <laughs> wh- why would he? Why would they release him just to uh, defeat him?
2: Mm-hmm. So now we're in Revelation twenty. Uh, I believe so.
1: We're towards yeah, the end. A yeah. thousand years. Yeah.
2: So it says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. Um, And then it says a little bit later, but he'll be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, So your question is why would he be released?
1: Yeah, like, why would he be released just to be, like, getting rid of like right away? Why wouldn't he just, like, when the devil is put in, um, like, when the devil chained. is chained, um, like, why wouldn't God just get rid of him then? Why would he wait a thousand years to release him and then just get
2: rid of him then? Mm-hmm. So, I'll open up a whole new can of worms. <laughs> so this is... What's referred to as the millennium.
3: hmm
2: Thousand year period. There are four I guess there's four views of the millennium. That kind of correspond to what we've talked about so far. So the first the first idea is called pre millennialism. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea that Jesus is going to return before. That's what pre means. So before the millennium, Jesus is going to return. That's what we talked about with the dispensation mm-hmm. view. So Jesus is going to return before the millennium, pre-millennial, and set up a thousand-year kingdom. So if I were a pre-millennial, how would I answer your question, which is why do that? Um, I I think they would say, I'm not a pre millennialist but they, I think they would say, that the reason God does that is for because dur- during that 1,000 years, people have the freedom to choose whether they're going to follow Jesus because he's establishing his kingdom on earth mm. or whether they're going to stay in rebellion. And until he gives them a 1,000 years, because God is patient, he gives people a 1,000 years to decide what kingdom they want to be part of, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the devil. And at the end of the 1,000 years, he releases Satan basically as a way of making the the final division. Like, so at that point, Satan and his people will be destroyed and God and his people will be preserved. Mm. So that's the premillennial view. That says the thousand years is after Jesus returns uh, and it'll be the kingdom on earth. There's another view called ah-millennialism, which, uh, the, and the word ah in that prefix just means no. So like, if, if I'm an atheist, that's no God.
1: Mm, so it's just like the opposite.
2: So amillennialism is the belief that there is no millennium. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not literal. It's not a thousand years. Mm-hmm. So, But but what do amillennialists believe about that passage? They believe... I actually happen to be an amillennialist. Um, amillennialists believe that the thousand years is symbolic of the entire church age. Mm-hmm. So during the church age... Satan is kind of a chained beast. Like he's in, he's, he's limited mm-hmm. in what he can do. For instance, he the passage is about deceiving the nations. At the end of the thousand years, he goes out and deceives the nations. But the idea is that during the thousand years, Satan can't deceive the nations anymore. For the whole Old Testament, the truth about God was kept to basically one nation, right? The nation of Israel. When Jesus defeated Satan on the cross and started the millennium, Satan could no Satan was kept from deceiving the nations anymore that's why the gospel exploded across the Empire so there was Christians now getting saved in Turkey and Italy and England but Satan was no longer able to stop the spread of the gospel now if so if you were to ask the question to an amillennialist, why is Satan going to be released at the end of that? Mm-hmm. It would basically just be the same thing that this age that we're in now is the age of decision.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, today choose this day if you will serve God. So this is the age of decision, and at the end of the world, um, when Jesus, around the time that Jesus returns, there'll be a release of Satan to get people to make their final decision: are they mm-hmm. going to side with Satan or side with Jesus? So it's, it's basically the same view, except the Armillennialist thinks it's happening now, and the Futurists or the premillennialist thinks it's going to happen later,
3: hmm.
2: but the reason for Satan being released is to is to basically separate the sheep and the goats.
1: Um, gotta turn my page. I only have a few questions left.
2: Yeah, there there are two more views of the millennium. Mm-hmm. The the post millennial view is that the millennium is going to happen after everything. This view is kind of similar to it just It just basically says that the world is actually going to get better and better. The world's going to get better and better until until Jesus returns. Like, he'll return post-millennium. Like, we're going to, the world's going to get better and better because we are obedient to the gospel more and more. That kind of goes with what I was saying earlier with, like, the quality and quantity will increase. Mm-hmm.
3: And
2: then we can speed the coming. Once we've once we've, once we've gotten the church bigger and better, then Jesus will come at the end of that. Mm-hmm. So that's the millennium. And then the fourth view is a, just kind of a joke view. It's called pan-millennials. Pan mm-hmm. means it'll all pan out in the end. We don't have to worry about which one of these is true. <laughs> so that's probably what most people do. I don't know, so I'm just going to guess that mm-hmm. it'll all work out and not worry about it. So those are different views of the millennium.
1: So, my next question is, why do we need a new heaven and new earth? Like, if we have a new heaven, well, like, if we go to heaven and there's a new earth, and maybe we go to the new earth, why would we need a new heaven if the new earth is perfect?
3: Mm -hmm. Well,
2: in the Bible, the word heaven can be used in a few different ways. Mm -hmm. So, like in Genesis, when God creates, he put the birds... The birds in the heavens.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, so heaven can just mean the sky.
3: Mm.
2: And heaven can mean. The like space. Beyond the earth. The atmosphere. And heaven can also be. Referred to as a place where God lives. That's why you'll sometimes see. You'll sometimes see in literature. Like references to. Or Paul says it actually too. He says I was caught up in the third heaven. You ever remember that? I don't remember what verse that's from? I was caught up in the third heaven, he says, in on one occasion. And what do you mean by third heaven? He means not the sky, not the universe, but the presence of God. Or you have the TV show Seventh Heaven, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, where does that come from? Um, the, the term Seventh Heaven comes from, there's these three tiers of heaven, but when you get to the presence of God tier, it's kind of set up like the temple. So there's an outer court, an inner court, the holy place, and the most holy place. So you add up the, you get to the third tier and then four, five, six, seven, Mm. the holy of holies is the seventh heaven. So seventh heaven is a idiom that means a place of perfection, like the holy of holies. Mm. So I say all that to say, why would we need a new heaven? Well, that's because you could, you could, it could just mean that the universe itself will be new because that's part of the heavens, right? But Mm. there won't be any more. Maybe black holes or asteroids or whatever the other thing yeah. but that will be that will need to be made new too, otherwise, there would be damage, mm-hmm. there would be terrible things that would go on in space and things like that. But there's also in the heavens, there's also demons, but that's part of like the invisible realm. There's demons, evil spirits. So, I think when it says the new heavens, it's saying those will be dealt with,
3: mm-hmm.
2: there'll be no more evil spirits and demons going around, you know, deceiving people. Yeah, like cleaning
1: it, it out. And, yeah, the hmm. heavens will
2: be cleaned out of the of the bad spiritual beings. So I think it's just saying, it's just going back to Genesis. The book of, the end of Revelation is just like the beginning of Genesis in some ways. Like in the beginning of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. And he fixes everything by the end of Revelation. So he's recreating the heavens and the earth. Because mm-hmm. things went wrong in both. Things <laughs> went wrong in heaven because Satan, Satan was in heaven. It talks saw. about it in
1: here, yeah, like yeah. Satan goes down with like third of the angels. Yeah.
2: There's war in heaven, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so things went wrong in heaven and earth, so that's why he has to fix heaven and
1: earth. Okay. Um and my final question is what is the new Jerusalem for? Like like we have the earth, so why do like what is the new Jerusalem just where like God will be or like God is, is God going to be everywhere? Like why do we need the new Jerusalem? Mhm.
2: Well, if you look at chapter 21, it's interesting how the New Jerusalem is described. Once again, this is another good example of how symbolic Mm -hmm. the book of Revelation is. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city. So that's the first thing he calls it, right? The holy city. Mm Mm-hmm the new jerusalem that's the second thing he calls it coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride now how do you imagine a city dressed in a wedding gown <laughs> that's weird
1: it's it's yeah it says it was like a bride dressed in her wedding gown yeah. ready to meet her husband <laughs> yeah. in my
2: in my bible <laughs> yeah so we we've had three different descriptions of this thing it's it, it's a holy city it's the new jerusalem and it's a bride so who is it coming down? Is it is it people or is it a city? Is it a people or is it buildings?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean each of them is a different metaphor. It's Like a city is something that has to be built. Like so when God describes the church he sometimes describes the church as a holy temple. Mm-hmm. You y'all you, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So even in those building metaphors, it's talking about people, right? The okay. church is people. Here's the church. Here's the people. Open up. There's. So even in the building metaphor, they're still talking about people. So I, I tend to think the New Jerusalem is the people of God.
1: So would the New Jerusalem be like the New Church and like the perfect church?
2: It's all those who had already died in Christ. So they were they were in heaven. So now they're coming down. Now, this is like the second coming. They're coming down out of heaven, dressed beautifully like a bride. They've been purified because they've already been in the presence of God. So they've been purified, and now they're coming down to live on earth. The goal was never to live in heaven forever. Mm-hmm. The goal has been to live on the new earth, to restore the earth to what it's been. So they're coming out of heaven, having been purified by the presence of God. They're coming down to re-inhabit the earth, um, and they're going to dwell, and God's coming with them. He's going to dwell with them. On It describes like even the, it even describes like the makeup of the city, like the structure. Like, I think, I think is, if you, if you look at that, like it's describing like a giant cube.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, huge.
2: If you actually measure it, it like goes from like, it would go from like Denver to Miami. Wow. Like it's gigantic. So I don't think it's literally, I don't think it literally means there's going to be a giant city that's that big. Mm -hmm. And some people are going to live in the city and some people are going to live out in the country. Like, I think it's saying, like, where else is there to live? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's gonna, I think it's basically saying the kingdom of God is going to be huge, Mm -hmm. like bigger than you can even imagine. Imagine if you were a first century person reading those dimensions, like, you wouldn't even have a you wouldn't even have be able to fathom Mm -hmm. going all the way from like Miami to Denver. Um, like, you, you, if you were a first century person, you've probably never traveled outside your own town, Mm -hmm. your own own region. So, this was just like a way to say, like, the kingdom of God is going to be huge, it's going to be explosively big.
1: So it's just symbolism for um, saying that this is going to be a like huge new kingdom of God.
2: Yeah, that the earth will be. I think that the whole earth will be filled with the kingdom of God. Is that's how I would take it. But there is, I mean, there is some stuff in there that's a little strange. For instance, in verse twenty-four of chapter twenty-one, it says. Uh, I'll start with verse 22. It says, I did not see a temple in the city Mm -hmm. because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Yeah, that that makes sense. But then it says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. Well, that's kind of cool to think about, but it's hard to imagine. And then it says in verse 24, the nations will walk by its light and their kings and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. So there is apparently an outside. uh, (laughs) There is apparently something outside or beyond the gates Mm -hmm. of the city. So that's a little baffling to me. Like, who are these people? Like, why are there still nations and kings outside of the city that bring stuff to it? Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, that's a little baffling. So that's that's why some people think um, that even this is just describing the current church and there's still people coming into the church. Like, we're already the New Jerusalem and we're just, people are coming into us one by one. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, once again, there's still a lot of views. But... uh, it's. I think mean, the majority would see this as more about the end of the world, like the new heavens.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's all the questions I had.
2: <laughs> well, it was a pretty good
3: lesson.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I wish I wish that it was a little more clear cut. Like it would be easier if you just asked the question. And I was like, everyone agrees this means this. Right? <laughs> yeah, but that's really not how the Bible works. The Bible is, I think, a book that's that's in its intention is to get us talking. Mm-hmm. Its intention is to get us thinking and you know to get us um wondering
3: mm-hmm. you
2: know what it is and i think it would be kind of actually more boring if it was just like this means this this means this this means this mm-hmm. this this. means this. and i think it's actually a little more exciting when you have to keep digging to mm-hmm. yeah um, as you dig you can start to dismiss certain interpretations as this doesn't make a lot of sense mm-hmm. and you kind of narrow in as you go and that yeah you know even after a lifetime you won't have all the answers but It's a a book that's meant to be wrestled
0: with. Okay, guys, thank you for listening again. Go check out Politics Central. The link will be in the description of the podcast. Also, all of the answers in brief will be in the description as well. And sadly, I probably won't see you on here next time. (laughs) Goodbye.